Some countries are much more gender equal than others, but we've no idea why. Although there is a wealth of research on gender in different places and time periods, from silo disciplines and methodologies, it is like a mountain of mosaic pieces. What we have now is millions of fragments. So, let me take a stab at building the mosaic by synthesizing the intellectual history of the patriarchy. Welcome to Rocking Our Prize. I'm your host, Dr. Anna Sevens. So let us chart the rise of gender studies. Until the 1960s, the social sciences were dominated by men, who typically ignored women. Grand claims went unchecked. The patriarchy was presumed to be universal, often attributed to biology and women's confinement as caregivers. Susan Brown Miller emphasised worldwide male violence. Simone de Beauvoir proclaimed, this has always been a man's world. Others, like Gambutas, posited ancient matriarchies and goddess worship. Over the 1970s, anthropology and archaeology became increasingly feminized and politicized. Struggles for sexual revolution on the streets fostered feminist consciousness in academia. In New York, Boston and Norway, female graduates rallied to discuss the latest publications. Together, they collectively reaffirmed and legitimized gender as a valid object of scientific inquiry. They also institutionalized gender studies by mentoring young women, editing books and teaching courses on cross-cultural variation. This was an ideological mission. If they could identify the drivers of patriarchy, they could change the world. Correcting male bias scholarship was another guiding objective. Prior research had largely been written by men about men. Feminist archaeologists, historians and anthropologists made women visible, demonstrating their importance, contributions and agency. As academia diversified, second-wave feminists and scholarship was increasingly lambasted as privileged, white and heteronormative. It was blinkered to differences between women. Black, working class and non-Western scholars drew attention to intersecting structures of disadvantage. As these empirical studies blossomed, assumptions of universal male dominance were debunked and discarded. Gender relations were increasingly shown to be globally heterogeneous. The central questions became where, when, and why had women become oppressed? So now let's turn to the debates on the origins of the patriarchy. So, with some trepidation, let me crudely condense this entire literature from archaeology, anthropology, history, economics, and genetics into ten hypotheses. Number one, evolution. Men evolved to control female sexuality, to maximise parental certainty, while women sought dominant providers. But note that these preferences usually adapt to context and diminish considerably with structural transformation. Testosterone is another key hypothesis, explaining men's heightened competitiveness and aggression. Though actually many studies, rigorous studies, do not find much connection. What about childbearing? 
making women dependent on men. Childcare also limits women's skill acquisition, their workplace commitment, career stability. That all encourages statistical discrimination. Fourth, step migration. Human male genetic diversity collapsed about five or seven thousand years ago. Step migrants outcompeted weaker, less technologically advanced men elsewhere and reproduced with those local women. Eurasia became patrilineal. Fifth, and this is one of the most famous ones, intensive agriculture raising men's economic importance. Since men were physically stronger, they ploughed the fields while women processed cereals. And that heightened female domesticity. In non-industrial societies where women contribute a larger share of the calories, like through foraging, women maintain the economic power. Girls are also seen more favourably and premarital sex is permitted. So the argument here is that women's childcare and food preparation was vital, yes, but they became economically dependent on marriage. They couldn't be economically autonomous. Families, keen to maximise their daughter's life chances, taught them to be submissive, to get a good husband. A related hypothesis is that patrilineal clans formed for protection. Intensive agriculture raised population density and land scarcity, at least in places where nearby land couldn't be improved with the available technology. That led to raiding and men's value as strong warriors. Patrilineal clans banded together to protect themselves and valuable land from attacks. Seventh, we move to our friend Engels. He argued that private property facilitated men's exploitation of female labour. As men accumulated wealth, they monopolised the surplus and institutionalised patrilineal inheritance. Men had always controlled the means of production, he argued, but amassed even greater advantage through private property. Cross-country anthropological studies reaffirmed that socioeconomic stratification generally compounded sexual hierarchy. So Marxist feminists theorised patriarchy in terms of men's control and expropriation of women's labour. A slightly different approach is that women competed for wealthy grooms with guarantees of paternal certainty. So again related to wealth and intensive agriculture, but now emphasising female rational choice. So wealthy landowners bequeathed land or herds to sons and they protected the valuable turf against nomadic attacks by clustering together as powerful patrilineal clans who then attracted willing brides. Cattle-based agricultural societies became patrilocal. Women became dependent on men for protection and since men were controlled resources, they designed moral codes to uphold female chastity. Penultimate theory uh, by Sachs and others is about states. The idea here is that the development of states undermined women's importance as sisters in kinship systems and reduced them to dependent wives. Others emphasised state control. Like to maximise social reproduction, states restricted women to domesticity. Tenth and final hypothesis is that colonialism introduced gender inequalities to places where they had not previously exist. Uh, strengthening male advantage. So several elements here. One is that 
colonizers favored men in agricultural training, so that's Bozarup. Uh, they imposed male bias legislation, male bias language, and Christian missions promoted the nuclear family and female domesticity. So women became more dependent on male breadwinners and they lost roles as religious leaders. Also some argue. Okay, so those are the existing debates, the intellectual history of the patriarchy. Now, each of those studies tended to emphasize one variable, genes, testosterone, private property, colonialism. Those are monocausal explanations, a blinkered to iterative adaptations and interactions over the long run. In the absence of comparative historical research over 10,000 years, we don't know the relative importance, the causal mechanisms or cultural evolution. Cardinal questions remain unanswered. So let me highlight five things we still need to think about. Number one, were foragers really so gender equal? Attempts to identify the origins of the patriarchy assumed a, a pre-Neolithic feminist utopia. But if recent studies of foragers are any guide, during the 100,000 years that our ancestors spent as hunter-gatherers, girls may still have been forced into marriage, often polygonously beaten and raped. And so I don't think it's clear, at least not to me, how exactly did socioeconomic stratification increase gender inequality? The two are correlated among pre-industrial societies, but there are four distinct and unresolved hypotheses. One is that strong men became important for subsistence agriculture. Another, patrilineal clans formed for protection. Or there's the Marxist tag that men exploited female labor. Then we have the rational choice hypothesis that women competed for wealthy grooms with displays of chastity. Which is correct. And for where? Thirdly, why no mention of honour? Those 1970s feminists, especially Marxists, tended to emphasise sexual aggression and the exploitation of female labour inside the home. But the obstacles to female wage labour are actually globally heterogeneous. In ancient Greece, southern Mesopotamia, Mughal India and Song China, men's honour was contingent on the chastity of female kin. Patrilineal clans maintained prestige and purity through female seclusion. That ideological prescription imposed a totally different constraint from the time burdens of childcare, for instance. In the 20th century, where domestic demand, not honour, were the major constraint, female wage labour would rise with time-saving engines of liberation. Fourth, what caused the Eurasian divergence? So all those earlier, many of those earlier hypotheses about intensive agriculture can't explain the Eurasian divergence because plough and cereal cultivation were the dominant modes of production across the whole of Eurasia. Yet in this very same geography, ancient Egyptian women socialised freely with scant concern for virginity and they commanded respect as priestesses to goddesses. So why, thousands of years later, did Egyptians come to idealise female seclusion? 
And how did Europe eventually emerge as more gender equal? What explains that Eurasian divergence? So what about religion? During the 1970s heyday of this literature, second wave feminists were heavily influenced by Marxism. They largely neglected cultural evolution and religion. So Christianity, once extremely patriarchal, but today is associated with greater gender equality, especially among Protestants. The Quran has many egalitarian aspects, and yet contemporary Muslim countries tend to be governed by men. Meanwhile, in pre-colonial Philippines, women enjoyed premarital sex, travelled widely as traders, owned land, worked as royal bodyguards, held high office, led worship as priestesses. Their religious importance was eroded by Catholicism. So this cultural evolution occurred over the very long run, and it can only be understood through comparative historical analysis. Now let me come to my final point. Where and how did colonialism exacerbate gender inequalities? So development generally leads to female emancipation, and imperialism has inhibited development and democratization in the global south, to be sure. But it may not be the sole cause of sexism. In the Middle East and North Africa, female seclusion was the norm long before colonialism. And it remains far more pervasive in the region than in other countries with similar wealth. Meanwhile, in Latin America, many indigenous people fiercely maintain their own traditions. And the non-elite permitted premarital sex and deemed trial marriage necessary for long-run companionship. Women continued to work, inherit and bequeath property. They also participated in local religious life and led protests. In sub-Saharan Africa, colonial bureaucracies were said to be male-biased, but they were tiny. State penetration was weak. Agricultural support was meager. Technological upgrading was minimal. And labor markets were minuscule. Imperialism simply did not benefit most African men. So it cannot have radically heightened their advantage. Moreover, even if a few men gain temporary benefits, Southern and Eastern Africa now have some of the world's most gender-equal parliaments. To me, that suggests that colonialism did not cement long-run inequalities. There could be other reasons why West African parliaments are now overwhelmingly male. So the existing literature is unable to answer these questions because... It's largely based on single-country case studies or cross-sectional regressions, like the standard cross-country sample. There is virtually no comparative historical work tracing how gender relations changed over the long durée and why they panned out differently across the world. Of late, there's been a flurry of valuable persistence studies, but these only examine the effects of X, like that's the plow, pastoralism, They don't explain the causes of why. They cannot tell us how the world came to be. To understand the emergence of patriarchies in different parts of the world, we need to harness the wealth of existing research on gender and apply comparative historical analysis. We must build that mosaic. Thank you for listening to Rocking Our Prize. I'm your host, 
Dr. Anna Evans. Take care.